Hello and welcome to Off Grid with me, Void. And me, Dave. It's the Not Really About Crosswords podcast where we have solved a cryptic crossword, had a look at what interesting words are in it, and we're going to tell you something about them. We've also picked three of our favourite clues to tell you how they worked. And if you're interested in which puzzle it was, so that you can go away and do it as well, this time it was the Independence Puzzle number 11123 from Tuesday the 7th of June, set by Knut. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. As well as all of that, we will also have a little quiz inspired by some words in the puzzle, courtesy of General Knowledge. Are you there, General? I am indeed. Good evening to you, or good whatever time of day it is, whenever you're listening, oh listener. Happy diurnal anomaly. Exactly. So let's have our favourite clues now then. General, what was your favourite clue you picked out of the puzzle? What was my favourite clue? Nine across. No, it was nine across, wasn't it? Yes, that was it. Dortmund miss final, Rue getting knocked out. Eight letters. And Dave? I picked two down. Words used to threaten family members in Old English. Two and four. And what did you choose? I went for 17 down. Gladiators failed to put out Sianka. Four, four. We'll revisit those in a little while as we go through the pod and explain how they work to you. So you can either have to think about them or ignore them. <laughs> Their feelings won't be hurt, I'm sure. Meanwhile, General, what word did you pick out of the puzzle to rabbit on about? So the word I've chosen for you today is lobsters. And it's an inherently funny word. Or I think, first of all, all three of us need to say repeatedly lobsters. 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 There we go. It's an inherently funny word, just because of the shape of the word when you say it, lobster. lobster. I, I was looking it up. Um, <laughs> it actually comes from the Latin locusta, which means locust or lobster. So they had the same word for both of them. That's odd. Which is mm. odd, because you kind of think that locusts are around where lobsters aren't, and vice versa. But Not a lot of uh, commonality between them, you wouldn't no. have thought, no. Um, Maybe it's one of those things where Aristotle decided that uh, locusts turn into lobsters in the autumn when they well, go like to swim or something like that. Like your barnacle goose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, could be. No idea. However, the reason I wanted to have a look at it is uh, because I saw a picture fairly recently of something called a split-colour lobster. So I've just sent Dave and Void a little link to a picture of said split-colour lobster. Um, <laughs> wow. It, it's amazing. Straight down the middle. Exactly. Imagine a lobster swimming in the sea, and in your brain it's probably going to be a sort of bluey-black, but this one was bluey-black on one half, and split dead down the middle, the other half is bright orange. It's like and, a truck driver's suntan, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Except on a lobster. Yeah. yeah, that's a left-right split rather exactly, than a front-back yeah. split. Yeah, case, exactly. That's a good point. And it, it's literally a razor-sharp line where the colour changes all the way from head to tail. And I wanted to find out some more about this. So, as is my want, this is going to be a science-based jump-off. So orange lobsters are quite rare. They do happen from time to time. Most lobsters are bluey black. And split-colour lobsters are even rarer. And it's a strikingly visual way of seeing something which sometimes happens in animal development, which is called gynandromorphy. So, based on your love of Greek words, what is that going to be? Female male shaping. 
Yes, quite. There we go. So, yeah, from the Greek gyna meaning woman and andros meaning man, the lobsters which are like this are half female, half male. Uh-huh. And they follow that razor sharp line all the way down. In this case, the orange half is male and the blue half is female. Freaky. Well, unusual at least. <laughs> um, this happens in other animals. We can find fruit flies where half the body is brown and half the body is yellow, or mosquitoes which have male anatomy on one side and female on the other. And perhaps the most striking other than the lobster we've got, there, there are two particular ones, chickens. You can get something that's half female and half male. It's gone off half cocked. Oh, you were literally, I've, I've literally, <laughs> I've got some notes here. I was literally going to make that sentence at that, that point next time. Stolen it from me. Well done. So there's that. Or possibly my favourite is butterflies, mm. because some butterflies show what's called sexual dimorphism. Male butterflies look very different from female butterflies. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can think of, you can, another example of this is in pheasants. So if you think of the, the brown female and the incredibly brightly coloured male with the big tail feathers and so on, that's sexual dimorphism. You get the same sort of thing in butterflies. Did you mean peacocks? Uh, no, no. You said pheasants. I did say pheasants, and you get pheasants. Male pheasants okay. are sort of excitingly coloured, and females are brown. But also peacocks. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good example as well. Cool. So, oh, sorry, I was slightly nonplussed there because peacocks are also a type of butterfly. Ah. <laughs> yeah. It's all connected. It's all connected. Terribly. Connected. So, when this happens in a butterfly, does yeah. it does it happen in that kind of left right thing? So it does you indeed. get you get like a brightly coloured set of wings on one side and. Plain yeah, ones on the other side. It's exactly that. These okay. gynandromorphic butterflies are amazing because one wing is male and one wing is female. And if you search online for Paul and but, Linda, uh, right? Um, wings. wings? Theory. Oh, oh, for goodness sake! You didn't have that one in your notes. Then. Oh, that's just terrible. Um, so I would urge you to go and search for butterfly gynandromorph on the internet and have a look at the images there because they are simply gorgeous. Some with one blue wing and one brown or one yellow wing and one black. It's not always a dead 50-50 split. Sometimes you can get mosaic gynandromorphism. So the top wing of the right-hand side and the bottom wing of the left-hand side is male and top of mm. left and bottom of right is female and so on. So how does all of this happen? Sorry, no, you, you look like we're going to give me an answer, so that's good. Please. I was going to say <laughs> gene mutation or something weird going on in epigenetic something. gene expression. So, yeah, it is stuff to do with genes, but it's, it's not actually gene mutations that cause it. And if you think about it, mutations tend to happen in... Well, mutations happen all over the place, but the way that mutations are inherited, uh, produced, which are inherited, would be in the sex cells, in the sperm and the eggs. This is actually after that. We start out with an egg and a sperm, and they fuse together to form a fertilized egg, and then that makes one cell with however many chromosomes you've got in it. For us, it would be 46. And when it divides, the cell duplicates all of its chromosomes, then partitions them off. So half go to one daughter cell, and half go to the other. So in our bodies, if we've got 46 chromosomes, during cell division, that gets doubled to 92. And then the pairs of chromosomes separate and the dividing barrier comes down the middle. Uh But sometimes, just sometimes, that doesn't work properly. So like with us, lobster sex is determined with an XY system. Female lobsters have two Xs and male lobsters have an X and a Y. So during a normal cell division in a male lobster embryo, the chromosomes are first duplicated to XXYY, and then they're supposed to divide. So each of the two cells produced by the division gets one X and one Y. Lovely. But sometimes that doesn't work properly. And the two child cells inherit an uneven number of chromosomes. So one gets a single X, and the other one gets XXY. 
And because the cell got a single X doesn't have a Y, its cell line will develop with female characteristics. Right. And the one which got XYY has a Y chromosome, so its cell line will develop with male characteristics. And this mistake is propagated all the way down through the progeny of those cells. And if it happens early on enough in development, so when the embryonia has one or a handful of cells, then you can get individuals which are half male and half female. So in our case of the friend, the split color lobster, there's also a mutation on the Y chromosome which affects its color. So the male half is orange and the female half, which doesn't have that mutation, is blue. How fascinating. How does it specifically translate to the line down the middle of the body? Is it because the... The lateral symmetry of the entire yeah. body in that first cell division? That's a very interesting question. There is a lot of research into symmetry breaking um, mm. in embryos, because if you think about an egg, um, I imagine what you're thinking of is a sort of round blob, white, <laughs> homogenous. There's no symmetry to it. It is just a sphere. There's no obvious direction. To it, mm -hmm. Exactly. So you can get directionality within an egg. Um, so there can be more of a particular gene product at one end than the other. Let's say the egg where it comes out of the follicle or comes out of the fruit fly that laid it or something like that. And it's those gradients which set up front and back and top to bottom and things like that within embryo development. Actually, left and right is formed from front and back and top and bottom. And once you've got those two axes set, then left and right have to be set by virtue of the fact that they're perpendicular right. from each other. Yeah. I can't and remember. Strange exactly. and charm? <laughs> Quark, strangeness and charm, wasn't it? I can't remember exactly which stage of the embryo it would need to happen at for the left and right symmetry breaking to be happening. But I think this would be happening at the point of the division from one cell to two, yes, because otherwise you wouldn't get this dead split down it. And sometimes you can get different divisions, so you get the front half and the back half. But this this bilateral division mm. is, is the one that's most often seen. Mm. Yeah. If that happened on a lobster and it happened yeah. at the front half to back half, it would look like it was like wearing a pair of brightly coloured jeans or something. Or you, or you just <laughs> dipped it halfway into a pot of boiling water, but yes. not the entire way. <laughs> See, I guess the question which might spring to mind is, do we get split humans or split other things? And, and the answer for the humans is almost certainly not. Because a lot of sexual differentiation in insects and crustaceans and birds is done with genetic pathways and things being turned on or off in individual cells by genetic control. But in mammals, the sex hormones, estrogen and testosterone, come into play. And there are actually very, very few genes on the human Y chromosome, slightly over 50 or so, whereas other chromosomes have genes in the hundreds or low thousands. But the key gene on the Y chromosome, called SRY, triggers male development. It causes tissue which would otherwise develop into ovaries to turn into testes. And those testes secrete testosterone and other hormones which spread throughout the developing embryo and they cause hormonal changes and it's the same at puberty where hormones flood through the body and in males that causes things like growth of an adam's apple and the lowering of the voice and stuff and in females it causes things like development of breasts and so on but so because these hormones are produced in one place and spread throughout the body in the blood you won't get an adult mammal which looks half male and half female in the same way that you will a crustacean or an insect yeah and all that's happening later on in the development yes that's yeah. true as well there we go. Mm. That's that's what lobsters made me think of. Lobster. Mm. Lobster. Lobster. Shall we go to a clue? Dave, tell us about your chosen clue and how it works. Okay. Uh, if you remember, the one that I commented on said, words used to threaten family members in Old English. And it led to an answer that was two letters and four. Uh, this was a container and contents clue where the container was Old English. 
and anyone who's ever paid any attention to the etymology parts of the dictionary entries will be familiar with seeing that abbreviated to just OE. And then in that, you have to put four other letters that will have to mean family members, meaning the only part of the clue left to be the definition is words used to threaten. So I don't know about anybody else's sort of solving techniques, but I then sat there trying to think of a two, four phrase that's used to threaten and begins with O and ends with E, and all you come up with is or else, whereupon you realise that the family members must be rels. <laughs> yeah, so that's that was my choice of clue. Fun. Void, what did you have to talk about? I picked out the word faddish. I thought, let's have a look at some historical fads. But I'm going to start with an aside. Do you know the song She Caught the Katie? Which is oh, yeah. featured in the Blues Brothers. Mm. Oh, Blues song. She caught the Katie and left me a mule to ride. I'm not really sure what the Katie I... was, but I don't well, know the song. No, I never had any idea. I always thought, what the hell's that? Oh, well, never mind. Let's just listen to the song. But I've discovered that the Katie is the Missouri Kansas Texas Railroad. Presumably, so KT for Kansas, Kansas, Texas. Yeah, right. and I discovered this when reading an article about historical train wrecks. As you do, not figuratively, but literally and non-accidentally. Oh, because a little bit before 1900, some bright spark realised that people like to gawp at things, especially spectacular things, and so he decided that. I don't know, maybe two trains crashing into each other would be quite a spectacle and maybe we can get people to pay to watch such a thing. Right. And so began the rather curious fad of building a short stretch of train track, buying a couple of old locomotives from a railway company, putting one at either end of the track, both pointing inwards, setting them full steam ahead at each other, and that would involve at least one person from each train jumping out at the last minute. And me. getting people to come along and go for this insane idea of entertainment. Right. I have so many questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the, the these... chief amongst which is, starts with a W and ends with an H and a Y. No, no, no. You could, I can understand why people <laughs> would want to do this, because who wouldn't want to see it? two trains crashing into each other. It's, it's more from a health and safety point of view, but I, I will let Well, yeah. So these crashes started becoming incredibly popular in the early 20th century, in the US, as far as I can make out, and not elsewhere. And one of them was promoted to such an extent that an entire town was set up to house the expected crowd that was going to turn up. I bet this town is going to be called Train Crash, Indiana, or something like that. Oh, you were so close for the <laughs> wrong reason, because the name of the person, the surname of the person uh, who was setting up this spectacle was Crush. So the town was called Crush, and 40,000 people showed up, and so for at least a day, it was the second biggest city in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I have further questions. <laughs> yeah, well, t- you you were asking about uh, safety. Some engineers were prepared to declare that this was a perfectly safe activity, you know, crashing two cranes, two cranes or trains head on against each other. 
which reminded me of Arthur Dent's quote, this is obviously some strange usage of the word safe that I was previously unaware of, because various injuries did happen at these events. At least two deaths, and one person suffered the loss of an eye from a flying bolt. I mean, whoever might have thought that there could be flying debris or explosions from a train <laughs> involved in such a thing. Now, in case the spectacle wasn't impressive enough, sometimes they thought, I know. Let's load some... the trains with yes, dynamite. Exactly. Oh, Absolutely. No. Add a bunch <laughs> of dynamite to the front of the locos or add some payloads of hot coals and or gasoline. You know, just in case. So... Am I am I allowed to ask questions about all yes. of this now? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, how far away were the people who were watching? Oh, now I didn't. I did look for that in the article I read. Um, mm. It didn't mention it. I mean, if I was organising the event, I would have put them a safe distance away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but a whole city um, of people there for this to happen probably would get too close. Yeah, At well, least one some of, the, of them would be un- unable to resist sneaking closer, wouldn't they? I can't remember if it was the 40,000 people uh, train crash that this was the case for, but in one of them, they built the train track in a bit of a valley where there were three hillsides that looked down upon it. So that seems that feels kind sensible. of sensible. Yeah. A sort of um, natural auditorium. Exactly, yeah. Everyone gets a good view. Don't rush to the front. Plenty of space at the back. And, and what did the people die of? The article was quite vague. I imagine hideous injuries. Hit okay. by debris, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, or crushed in a brawl or something like that. Oh, stampeding to get away from it. I would have thought it would be the explosive shrapnel and debris that. <laughs> you know, with, with the very first train that was run in Britain, an MP was killed by it on its first outing. That yeah. does sound vaguely familiar. It was in, in Winchester. He stood in front of it to get a better look of it and didn't realise how fast it was going and got run over. <laughs> There's a monument to him in Winchester Cathedral. With a caption on the plinth that says, Duh! This man yeah. was an idiot. Tragedy plus time equals comedy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, anyway, these this practice of deliberate train crash spectacles died out around the time of the Great Depression. Presumably because people had less cash to spend and locomotives were an expensive purchase for a one-time occasion. Mm. But they did live on in films. A couple of examples. In the 1952 film Denver and Rio Grande, they crashed two trains head-on, which is not to be confused with the John Wayne film Rio Grande, which is an entirely different film. And... There was another one in the 1927 Buster Keaton Civil War era film, which had a really high budget, but wasn't a box office success. So it was regarded as a bit of a flop at the time, but it's since been reevaluated and it's now considered one of his greatest films. And there are a couple of train chases and one spectacular train crash in that. Uh, this particular film is now in the public domain. So we can embed the full film in the blog for you to watch. And the full film of the Buster Keaton one rather than yeah. the I, film. Okay. I see where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah, so I was gonna ask you if you knew the name of the film, which takes its name from the name of the train in the film, 
but Dave got there first. It is called, of course, The General. I didn't start out trying to get there, but I did end up at The General in the end. Yeah. So I thought, um, yeah, I was going to look at some other historical fads as well, but and I thought, no, there's, there's a perfect full stop. Those are enough. General, what was your favourite clue and how did it work, please? So my favourite clue was, as you told me, nine across, uh, Dortmund <laughs> Miss Final, Rue getting knocked out. And the reason I chose this one is I think the reason I've chosen other favourite clues beforehand in that it contains a clue, a definition and literally nothing else. It is absolutely perfect. Um, the misdirection in the um, definition is flawless. There is not a single superfluous word or anything. Dortmund is final, Rue getting knocked out. A footballing story? It, well, exactly. And it, it and the surface is totally unrelated to the solution as well, which I always like. Mm. The definition is Dortmund miss. Getting knocked out is an anagram indicator of final Rue. And the answer is Fraulein being a Dortmund miss. It's an absolutely perfect clue. I wish I had written it. Agreed. Mm. Applause not. Dave, what word did you pick? Well... I think two episodes ago, I found myself linking two words from the grid. Mm -hmm. This time, I think I'm going to try and draw a chain between three of them. Were either of you two familiar with the word you two before this puzzle? I was familiar that it existed because I play Scrabble. Ah. I did not know what it meant. I was not, and I guessed, then looked it up. Um, well, it was defined in the clue as compensation sought in NZ. And sure enough, the dictionary has it as a Maori word, meaning settlement of a debt, retribution or vengeance. Now, I was familiar with it because it was the title of a New Zealand film made in 1983. <laughs> and I have the soundtrack album for it. Dave is now showing us. That's a weird photograph on this the... cover of the soundtrack. It's a bit like a sort of Maori Einstein. Now, uh, the director of this film was a chap called Jeff Murphy, and the composer was John Charles. Um, and by way of a distraction, their best-known film together is perhaps the weird sci-fi movie The Quiet Earth. And if you haven't seen it, another recommendation is just search online for The Quiet Earth Final Scene. Enjoy, <laughs> enjoy the bizarreness of that three-minute clip. Okay. At any rate, these two guys were from Wellington. And the star of the film, whose picture you can see on the front there, was a chap called Anzac Wallace. And he was from Auckland. You won't be surprised to know that Anzac Wallace was not his real birth name. Mm -hmm. uh, that was Norman Penne Rewiri. He was like a juvenile delinquent. Started off petty crime, turned to armed robbery. Eventually got jailed, spent several years inside. But while he was in prison, he reformed himself, taught himself to read, became a construction worker, and then somehow got cast in as the lead. Well, oh, after prison. After prison, became, yeah. And then got cast as the lead in Utu. And he also appeared in The Quiet Earth, because obviously, um, yeah, Jeff Murphy obviously kind of thought he was worth rehiring. But where's this going? Halfway between Wellington, <laughs> where Murphy and Charles lived, and Auckland, where Wallace lived, is a town called Waitara. And that's the birthplace of another New Zealand musician and composer called Todd Hunter. 
Uh-huh. It's a very common name. There are several Todd Hunters if one starts looking them up. There's like American politicians and what have you. But this one, he had a band called Dragon, and he also composed the music for the Australian TV series Heartbreak High. Okay. But I'm not thinking about who he is. I'm just thinking about his name, really, Todd Hunter. Right. Of course, the word Todd was also in the grid, you see. So Utu was 20 down, and Todd was 13 down. And obviously our setter defined it as fox in the clue. Because Todd is a common or country name for a fox, generally. Well, exactly. I mean, I looked in the dictionary, and Todd has several meanings, the first of which is indeed fox, which is a meaning that goes back a long way. The OED's first citation of that meaning is about 1,200. Mm. And, of course, as always, it says origin unknown. It's also the name that Beatrix Potter gave her fox, Mr. Todd, in Peter Rabbit was... Not only that, but those who remember the Disney animated film The Fox and the Hound from 1981 may recall that the fox character there is actually called Todd. I am now holding up a pin badge with his name and picture on it. Anyway, Todd Hunter as a name is quite a common thing, especially if you smush the two words together into Todd Hunter. Another one that people with long pop culture memories may recall the pilot episode of Red Dwarf had a character called Um, um, Frank Todd Hunter who was played by Robert Bathurst Uh, this was obviously before the radiation explosion or whatever it was that killed all of the crew except for he was a a second officer or something wasn't he? That's exactly it yeah he was kind of in charge of remember's exams and things like that of course and Todd Hunter's dead Dave yes exactly Anywho, obviously as a name, Todd Hunter, you can imagine it being a, an occupational surname, someone who actually was... Uh, Hunting uh, Todds. A, a fox hunter. Uh, and that, so that goes back to at least the 1300s. Um, but sort of following on from Anzac Wallace, we have another person who took up acting as a late career change after a fall from grace in a form of life. And that is a chap called James Foreman Todd Hunter Sloan. He's going to be one of those actors whose name went by the first name of Todd Hunter. <laughs> no, he actually, well, he, he was just known as Todd Sloan. Void's nodding because I think the name sounds vaguely familiar, possibly. Yeah, um, is this where, well, actually, I don't want to preempt you. Yes, I, well, yes is, your, is the answer to the question you were going to ask. Is this where we get the phrase... Yes, it is. Yes, that's right, where I'm okay. going. Part, that's partly where I'm going with this. Okay, um, Todd Sloan, he, he started out at the very tail end of the 19th century as a massively successful and inventive jockey. He developed the modern writing style known as the monkey crouch, short stirrups crouching low and forward over the horse's neck, as opposed to the older, more upright style. Sit up and neck. Which was obviously slower, so not so good in, in racing. Um he was hugely successful in the States, and then he came across to Britain, where he became a rider in the stables of the then Prince of Wales, uh, later Edward VII. Mm-hmm. On September the 30th, 1898, he rode five successive winners at Newmarket. He was described as flamboyant and colourful, but you can imagine those are the kind of epithets that may also be polite ways of describing what he was later described as Difficult, impertinent, arrogant. In 1901, the jockey club revoked his licence. A bit of an uppity oik, that's what they thought of him. Yeah, well, the reason was not officially stated, but newspaper reports at the time said that it had to do with 
betting on races that he himself was competing in. Oh, tusk, tusk. Yeah. He subsequently lost his French and American licenses too and had a precipitate fall from grace. By 1903, he was working as a chauffeur in Paris and then he had a short stint running a bar and then he went back to the USA and tried his hand at film acting. He has got an entry in the IMDb for some movies made in the 1920s. But you look at them, they were mostly fairly small parts, in at least two of which he appeared to be playing a character called Todd Sloan. <laughs> so it's like, mm, yeah, proper acting, you know? And then he died alone in poverty of cirrhosis of the liver in Los Angeles in 1933. And that brings us to the second meaning of Todd in the dictionary, alone, as in the phrase, to be all on your Todd, because that's rhyming slang for on your Todd Sloan for alone. There are more obvious ways of doing alone for rhyming slang. Well, (laughs) you might have thought so. Jack Jones, isn't that one as well? But... I hear you cry. Did I not say three words I was going to link? And I've linked Todd and Utu. You've done Uh, Todd twice, to be fair. I thought you were just double counting. Well, (laughs) you see, while I was looking up Todd in the dictionary, as well as the Fox stuff, and as well as the All On Your Own stuff, there is one other meaning, which is, according to the OED, a bushy mass of vegetation, especially ivy. And what is the answer to 18 across in this puzzle? It is Ivy Ivy Bush. Bush. Hey, thank you. Well, well done. Either you or not, or both. Or possibly both. (laughs) Yeah, both. Yeah. How about that? Right. You had a clue to tell us about. What was it? Yes, I did. I picked 17 down as my favourite clue. Gladiators failed to put out sea anchor. And like... Your favourite clue, General. This one had nothing extraneous in it. It was all wordplay and definition. The definition was sea anchor, and the answer was 4-4. Failed is an anagram indicator, so you want an anagram of gladiators, but the mathematically minded amongst you will already be saying, but that's not eight letters. No, it isn't. But then you have to put out, or to phrase it differently, to put out. In other words, if you put out T and O from gladiators, you're left with gladiars, and then you fail it, anagram it, and you get drag sail, which is another word for a sea anchor. Short and sweet, everything doing what it should do in the clue. Very nice. Quiz. Okay, so I have three questions for you. Woohoo! These questions are all still science-based because I've got to earn my keep somehow. <laughs> um, so question number one, inspired by the word caterer. So we're thinking about cooking. In what way are the flavours of spearmint and caraway related? They come Can... from plants? They do come from plants. Can I make a guess here. You can make a guess here. Is this one of these chiral molecule things? That one Very is good. the left-handed version and the other is the right-handed version of the same thing? Very good indeed. Do you want to explain some more? 
Well, just asterisk C episode number. Whatever it was. Whatever yeah. it was. <laughs> oh no, you already had this question. Not the question, but we talked about chirality and chirality. That general kind of world of things, yeah. Oh, I'd forgotten that. Rubbish. Yeah. I would have like... guessed that they both came from the same plant, but different. No, uh, no, caraway comes but... from caraway. And... Yeah. Spearmint comes from spearmint. Yeah. But, uh, so, so, and yeah, you have a left-handed version and a right-handed version, and we have different receptors in our tongues which pick up the two in different ways, and one tastes of spearmint and one tastes of caraway. Hmm. Very nice. Well done. Thank um, you. <laughs> I, I have no more uh, exciting things on that, um, apart from to note that all of the um, amino acids in our body are of one particular form, but not the other. I believe they're the L form. There was, um, yeah, which would be the left. Yeah, there was. I think uh, a short science fiction story might have been by Arthur C. Clarke that involved a character going through into a sort of mirror world or being right. done through a, a machine that reversed him laterally. And all of his toothpaste <laughs> tasted of caraway. Well, I, I don't think he, I don't think he knew that one, but so uh, there was certainly that he found himself completely unable to digest all the food and things like that. Yeah. Oh wow, that's a lovely idea. Yeah, when yeah. yeah, yeah, he was flipped, and either when he was in the mirror world or when he came back, you know, everything was the wrong way around for him. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, it, it's surprising how um, chirality can affect things to such an extent that one is a drug and one will kill you or the fact that they just taste different yeah okay moving on question number two inspired by the word mullet um incidentally i used to know somebody called mullet and people who knew him sometimes used to refer him refer to him in the french mullet which is quite like monsieur mullet um what fish product is used in the production of wine or beer? I've got a vague recollection. My friend Richard has become vegan recently and that means he can't drink certain wines or beers because of this product. I think I... I can't remember. Go on, Dave, what were you going to say? Icing glass? That's it. Excellent. Well done. Which is what, General? Something from the swim bladders, isn't it? Very good indeed. You are on fire this evening. Icing glass is, yeah, an extract of the swim bladders of fish. Um, it was originally isolated from sturgeon. It is a little bit like gelatin in that it is made of collagen. And it's not really known how the fact that it could clear wine was discovered, because you wouldn't tend to think of putting in crushed up swim bladders of fish into your vat of wine. So many substances and processes like that that you think, how was that discovered in the first place? Yeah, my my guess is that it was discovered using something else, and then they realised that that was similar mm. and cheaper. Um, because we've got all of these belugas that we've killed for some various reason, we've got this bit left over. Well, that looks a bit like that. Let's shove it in and see what happens. Yeah. Um, but it flocculates the yeast, which is one of my favourite words. Flocculates. Um, and which brings it together in clumps and uh, makes it all settle out much faster. It would settle out on its own. Flocky knocky nihilification. Same to you, yes. Thank you. Yeah. What, what, um, remind me what that means. It's the, the process of regarding something as, n- as useless or something, isn't it? I, I don't know. It was a faux constructed word so that it could be the longest word in the yeah. English language. 
at that point. The action or habit of estimating something as worthless. Yeah. There we are. Right. I don't know where flocky came from there, though. No, it doesn't seem to have a kind of clumping kind of sense in that word, does it? No. But but yes, I, I, you are quite right. Beer and wine made with this is not considered vegan or vegetarian. Um, mm. To clear a vegan or vegetarian wine, you would use something like carrageenan, which is a um, seaweed, um, or just leave it to settle, which also works fine. <laughs> it just takes longer, and that means that you tie up your winemaking vat for longer, which means you cannot make any more wine. Final question then. Smelts. There's lots of good words in here, but I think lobsters is still the best. Lobsters. Smelts. What percentage of global electricity usage is accounted for by the smelting of aluminium? Now, you've asked the question. That I, I have. So therefore, it's a question worth asking. So I think it's probably <laughs> going to be ridiculously high. Yeah. So, of all the electricity used by humans, what percent goes into smelting aluminium? Is that a paraphrase that of the is, question? That is another way of asking what it was. Ah, okay. Hmm. Seven. Which seems like a small number, but a high proportion for one thing. That's just just a guess, based on nothing Dave's particularly. Dave's looking perplexed. Isn't, isn't, Dave isn't yeah. sure whether to go higher or lower now. Well, no, well, quite. You go, I think the, the question that we would all be horrified at the answer is, right, what percentage of electricity goes into mining bitcoins? Um, mm. I'll see if I can some, find that out. Something horrible. Something horrible. I don't know. I don't think... I'm going to go lower and say 5%. So aluminium smelting uses 3% of world electricity production. Pretty close. Um, whereas Bitcoin, I have just found out with some very quick Googling, is 0.55. Oh, well. <laughs> um, aluminium smelting is astonishingly electricity heavy mm. because the only real way to get it out of its ore is to heat it up until it's molten and then apply an electric current across it and the aluminium ore reacts with one of the electrodes producing aluminium and carbon dioxide, I think it is. Yeah, I think it's Al2O3. So it reacts with carbon to produce carbon dioxide and aluminium, which is then poured off as it's liquid. Mm. But you need to keep it hot all the time for the current to flow. So it's not something you turn on and you turn off. You have a constantly going aluminium smelter. Mm -hmm. um, and then you tip in a bit more. I think bauxite, I think, is the um, yeah. uh, aluminium ore. ore. And it, it just keeps operating. You can't say, well, I'll do it at night when it's cheaper or something like that, because the ore will have cooled down to such an extent that you can't pass the electricity through it. So it just keeps going. They're often built by rivers or seas or somewhere where they can generate large quantities of power very quickly because it's phenomenally expensive. Mm. And there used to be, yeah, there were two aluminium smelting, I was going to say places again. Plants? Oh, it, it, plants, yes, okay. Um, in England, there's Anglesey Aluminium. Smelteries. And... <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't wish to smelteries. <laughs> hey! And there was another one up uh, up north somewhere, but they, they would use about 3 or 4% of national grid output. And they, wow. they had a little counter in there of how much they were actually using. A friend of mine went to see it, and there was this 
message maker, which we are currently using 3.1% of the national grid. It does just seem like a problem that needs solving. By the way, I've just, just checked on the OED, and the word for a place where ores are smelted is a smeltery. <laughs> <laughs> so then... Uh... <laughs> okay. As you say, it does seem like this is a problem which should have been solved, mm. but it hasn't been because this is currently the best way of doing it. Mm. So there we go. So, listener, if you have any bright ideas, please email us on yeah. Smel- smeltery at off-grid.podcast. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, General. That was wicked. Okay, folks, you have been listening to Off Grid. It's time for us to toddle off. Remember, the world is your lobster. <laughs> Show notes, as always, are at offgrid.tlmb.net, and you can say hi to us on Twitter, where I'm at Skowingle. And I'm at the void TLMB. Uh, you can also catch my latest crossword in the Independent, dated the 18th of June 2022. And I'd also like to recommend Richard Loxley's Crossword Solver app, which I use quite a lot as a setter to find word patterns and anagrams and partial anagrams. And you can find a link to that on richardloxley.com. General, do you have any recommendations for us this time? I would always recommend you to check out one across Crossword Magazine, which uh, we have uh, Void publishing in every so often, and puzzles from new setters and old hands, which play fast and loose with the rules uh, and aren't always perfectly edited, but we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so do, do check that out. Um, and it's worth also having a bit of a look at the Wikipedia pages for things like crush um just while these two have been talking over having a look at it there's pictures there's all sorts of things you can go down rabbit holes like that so um and i would finally recommend that you keep listening to this podcast because these two guys are lovely thanks very much general but on that point this is the point at which we would normally say see you in a fortnight but this is the last episode in series one of off grid I would like to thank you, Dave, and you, General, for being excellent conversationalists for the last 26 or so episodes. Thank you very much. You are welcome. We make off-grid because it's fun to do it, but it is also work to solve the puzzles and do the research and write the blog and produce the episodes and get them out to you. Fun work, yes, but... It's also unpaid work, which kind of makes it a little bit less fun. So we're taking a break, and that break may or may not be permanent. We'll see. Thank you to the one person who hasn't been on the podcast who left us a review on Apple Podcasts. You're the best. And thanks to anyone who left us a rating or commented or retweeted us at any point too, or just bothered to listen. You're all cool too. Still, bye. It's <laughs> easy. Take care. Off Grid is a TLMB production. Hello to our new listener in Croatia. We never did get that listener in Antarctica, though. Thank you to Nut Canute for today's puzzle, and thank you to the Trudy for our excellent theme tune. We meant it, you know. You 
should rightly have the grin on your face that you have now. <laughs> <laughs> well done. 